Thanks for listening to this message from The Block KC. The Block KC exists to help young adults build their lives on what counts. We believe that is Jesus and what God has revealed in His Word. We'd love to see you next Thursday, 7 p.m. at Lenexa Baptist Church. Now, let's listen to this week's message. Block Kansas City, hope you're all having a good Thursday night. How are we doing tonight? There we go. Hey, we are so glad that you've chosen to spend your Thursday night here. We're going to be continuing on in our series, Colossians, Walking in Christ's Freedom. If you've got a copy of God's Word, open to Colossians 1.24. If you're new to the Bible, it's between Philippians or 1 Thessalonians. Uh, look for the Eans. You'll find it somewhere in there. As we get started tonight, I was not planning on saying this at the beginning, but I felt like Luke had me say this. How about them Chiefs? Come on. Let's go. What a win. That was fantastic. Uh, it's going to be a good night to talk about the Chiefs uh, because just as I get a feel for the room, show me with your hands who here would say that you're a competitive person. Okay, good. Games, sports, trivia, work, whatever it is, you're competitive. Who here is less competitive? A couple people. It might be a tough night for you. Uh, just kidding. It'll be fun. Um, I would say that I'm a competitive person. I get overly competitive even when I'm playing games with my nieces who are two and five years old. I don't compete against them, but I'm like, hey, no, we've got to play according to the rules. Like, we, we've got to win this game. And I've been competitive for a long time. In high school, I tried out for the soccer team my freshman year. I talk a lot about high school sports up here. Uh, something issue with that. But So there were players who made the JV team who are now playing in the MLS. So needless to say, I did not make any of the teams. I was not on the quality of player that they were looking for. And so as a competitor, I was crushed. I was devastated that I didn't make the team, but it opened the door for my true calling, and I found out that that was to be a track athlete. I learned something that year. I was made to run the mile. I was all legs and no upper body. I wasn't going to play football. I wasn't going to play soccer, but I could run the mile. And I ran the mile. My fastest time was 4 minutes and 57 seconds, which some people are like, oh, wow, that's pretty good. It's a minute slower than the high school record. So I can't really say it was great, but it felt good for me. Sub 5 felt pretty, pretty good. And as I ran this race and learned the race, suddenly all the frustration of getting cut from the soccer team made me realize, man, I had confidence that I could run this race. And I learned a very valuable lesson. I had been trying to compete in someone else's game. I was trying to compete as a soccer star. I was trying to compete as a football player. But it turns out I should have just been running the mile. I should have just been running in circles for four laps. And I needed to run my race if I was going to compete. And the reason why I bring this up tonight is because God's word describes the Christian life as a race. So we're going to talk a little bit about sports tonight. Uh, in Colossians 1 and 2, Paul uses terminology that were directly taken from the Greek Olympic Games to describe his own ministry. You can see up on the screen. We might translate these words as struggling. He says, for this I toil struggling, or the Greek word would be agonizeomai, there we go, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle or an agon I have for you. 
Struggling, it literally means to enter a contest or to compete in the gymnastic games. Agon was an arena or a stadium. It was the assembly of Greeks at their national games. And Paul is describing the Christian life as this agon, as this competition. In that day, the Greek games were the height of competition, height of entertainment. People would come from all over the Roman Empire to watch each of the four Greek games that happened almost every year. This is crazy. Entire wars were put on pause because of something called the Olympic Treaty. People would literally lay down their arms and go watch the sports and come back and resume fighting. That's how intense people took this. It was a huge deal. For an analogy in today's world, Paul might have been saying, hey, I am playing in the spiritual Super Bowl. I am competing in the spiritual Summer Olympics for God, which just sounds kind of lame, honestly. Uh, But the good news tonight is that whether you do or do not like sports, this is all going to be metaphorical, so there's going to be no actual sports knowledge required. And it may seem unusual to us that athletics are used here in this passage because God could have used any number of illustrations or word pictures to convey his point. But this is what he chose. Something about competition reveals to us a truth about following God. So much so that throughout the entire New Testament, athletics are used as a positive comparison to the Christian life over 50 times. 50 times Paul describes the life of a Christian as a competition or as a race, as an athletic event. And so if Paul is going to be talking about his ministry, his ministry that he entrusts to the church, then we need to understand how Paul sees himself. Through the whole context of God's word, we need to understand that Paul sees himself as a competitor. And it's not, just listed, or it's not just limited to the Apostle Paul. In times we're called often to have an athletic or competition mindset towards our faith. Hebrews 12 tells us that we are to run the race of faith, run the agon of faith. And so tonight's message is simply entitled, Competing for the Gospel. And here's why this is important, y'all. Everyone is competing for something. Every single person in this room is running some kind of race. And my concern is that if you're here tonight and you're not a follower of Jesus, you are running a race that will get you a prize, but that prize will not last. You're running for something that's ultimately in the grand scheme of eternity. It's not going to matter. You're competing in the professional or the relational or the financial Super Bowl, only to realize that it's not that important on this li- in the, for the rest of time. And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, you might be running a race, but no one has ever clearly marked out for you what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to run the race of faith. And so you're trying to run, but you have no clue where you're running because no one has ever taught you. No one has ever explained this to you. And furthermore, maybe you're here tonight and you're trying to run, you're wanting to run the race, you're struggling and competing for the gospel, and you're tired. And what you need is someone to come alongside you and to encourage you and remind you that God's word says that there is a prize. And God's word says that this race is worth running. So wherever you come in tonight, my prayer is that each of us would walk away understanding the race of faith and understanding what it means to compete for the gospel for our benefit and for the glory of God. With that, let's start. Uh, with that, let's start and pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight, God, needing 
your word to ring true. God, we need to understand what you have to say to us. God, let us not be a room that defines our own life, God, that wants to mark out our own races. God, I pray if there are people here, God, who have been running after all different kinds of things, God, would they see the value of running after you? And God, for the people here who are followers of you who are running the race, God, I pray that this time would be encouraging. Would it help them be excited to go out and to live for you? And God, would all of these things happen because your spirit is teaching us these things tonight? We need you to teach us your word. Would you teach us these things tonight so that we might know your great love for us and we might praise your name? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so kicking off in verse 24, Paul says this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed in his saints. To say that in a lot less words and condense that down, Paul is explaining here that he has a responsibility as a minister of the gospel. That's what he's saying, simply put. Paul, at one point in his life, had been, if you're not familiar, one of the biggest opponents to Christianity. He was going from town to town, throwing Christians in prison, putting them to death. And yet Jesus's life was, or Paul's life was transformed when he had an encounter with Jesus, and Jesus gave him a new purpose, and he called him to go out and live as a minister of the gospel. And so God has called Paul to be a minister or a servant, that word minister just means servant, of God's people, who's the church, in order to make God's message, the gospel, fully known. And Paul says that in order for me to teach this message, I have had to undergo sufferings. I've had to go through hardships, whether it's persecution from other people, whether it's hunger, whether it's tiredness, whether it's spiritual opposition. But Paul is saying, I have gone through hardships, and in this hardship, I rejoice. Man, Paul's looking at all these things, these hardships, and he says, I'm filled with joy. I love it. Because of the sufferings of the sake of the church, not in spite. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Man, I don't know about you guys, but that is not me when I'm suffering. Anyone here, when you get sick, you fall apart? Yeah, me too. Uh... I get like a little scratch in my throat. I'm like, I probably need to stay home for the next couple of days, don't I? Like, I, I, I better work from home. I, I might just lay on the couch watching Practical Jokers for five hours. And I just plead with God to feel better. I'm like, God, please help me. I need you right now. But there's one situation I'm willing to bet in most of our lives that we are willing to put up with a little pain. That we're willing to put up with a little discomfort, and that's the gym. That's the court, or that's the field. There's something that happens when we go out and we start training ourselves that we realize, man, the pain actually fuels me. Man, this discomfort actually means that something is happening. If I'm working out and I don't feel my muscles breaking down at all, or I don't feel myself getting winded, I'm really not working out at all. And so Paul is saying that this is driving him forward. Any athlete will tell you that the pain 
that comes with training really fuels them on because of the endorphins that are released and because they know the goal that they're competing for. And so that means that there has to be something that's worth it. This message that Paul keeps talking about, it's got to be worth it. And he says this message in Colossians 1.27. He says, To them, the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says that this mystery, this message that he has been entrusted with, that he suffers for, that he has joy over, is that the God of all creation would come down and live a human life, and while we were dead in our sins, no hope, no spiritual life, completely dead. When we were dead, God would give us new life, and he would actually not just give us life, but he would take up residence within us and live life with us and promise us that one day we are going to experience his glory. In week one, if you weren't here, we talked about how Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our hope of that treasure and of that glory and how he's rescued us from the domain of darkness and sin and hell and he's brought us into his kingdom for life. In week two, we talked about how God is this all-powerful, eternal, holy being. It's beyond our ability to understand. And it is that God who came and died on a cross for our sins. And Paul is saying, man, this message is everything to me. He describes it as riches. He says the news that people can go from eternal death and sin is so life-transforming that he loves getting to go out and suffer for other people's behalf that they can know this message too. Point number one, competing for the gospel requires sacrifice and service for other people to know Jesus. Competing for the gospel requires sacrifice and service for other people to know Jesus. Paul says that as a minister of the gospel, he has been entrusted with a special responsibility for the church to know Jesus deeper and to understand the gospel. And this applies forward today. Pastors and ministers in today's world need to be willing to put themselves last and encourage the people of God to know Jesus deeper. If you're wondering, okay, what does this mean for me? It's because that there is a spiritual responsibility given to the leaders of churches for the spiritual health of their people. And this looks like regularly creating opportunities for people to know God, regularly pointing people towards God's word, praying with people in times of hardship, giving advice and counsel during uncertain seasons. And so the reason why we get up here at the beginning of each block night and we invite you guys to come be a part of the body of Alexa Baptist or the body at Journey Bible Church is because you need to have someone who's caring for your soul. You need to have someone who's encouraging you and who's pointing you towards God. There is a responsibility that God gives to look out for other people. And it doesn't mean necessarily solving everyone's problems. It doesn't mean answering all the questions. But it does mean loving people towards Jesus sacrificially. In 1 Timothy 4.10, it's written from Paul to Timothy, who was a young minister, he says, for this end we toil and strive, or agon, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Paul is calling Timothy to remain firm in his hope that this suffering is worth it so that people can be saved. 
Again, it's so important that you have people that are looking out for you. It's so important that you have a church that cares for your soul, that points you towards Jesus, that gets you excited about the message of the gospel. Paul is describing his ministry as an example to other ministers. He's describing this as a competition. And in addition to that, the job of ministers of the gospel is to equip every believer to do that same work of ministry. Jesus commanded his 12 disciples to go and make disciples. He said, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded them. Everything includes making disciples. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so Paul is saying, as a minister of the gospel, I'm inviting everyone else to participate in telling other people about Jesus, to loving other people sacrificially, to serving other people towards God. Second, Hebrews 12.1, again, it says, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. It's talking about all the people of faith who have gone before us. It says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race, the agon that is set before us. We are all called to sacrifice and serve so that other people can know Jesus. The way I think of it is like being an O-lineman in the NFL. Uh... Chiefs reference number two, for those of you guys keep a track. I mean, you just get routinely bashed and beaten and stepped on and pushed around. And the only time anyone ever notices you is when you get penalties. Like when you hold is the only time anyone really notices the O-line. And so for the most part, it's a very thankless position. Like your job is to protect the quarterback and have these 250, 300-pound defensive linemen shove you around for three hours so that some guy can throw a ball behind you, so that some guy can run through little holes that you open up. And they do this so that other people can succeed because they want their team to win. They face the pressure. They face the beating. They face the pain Because they realize that someone else on the field is more important. And so they step out of the spotlight so that others can find success. They don't score the touchdowns. They don't get most of the praise. But they win when other people win. Again, this is a fundamental truth that God has put into the universe. That selfishness is never the way to life. It goes back to the point. Point number one, competing for the gospel requires sacrifice and service for other people to know Jesus. And that life of selflessness, if we want to live for ourselves, if we want to put ourselves in the spotlight, it might lead to little bursts of happiness, but ultimately it will only lead to disappointment. In fact, two French psychologists found in 2011 that self-centeredness or a life that's associated with seeking pleasure for yourself, avoiding pain for yourself, It leads to cycles where you have a slight satisfaction and then much deeper dissatisfaction. And it goes up a little bit and it goes back down even further. And a life lived for ourselves really isn't that satisfying. And this only backs up what Jesus himself said, that whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for Jesus' sake and for the gospel will find it. Jesus is saying, if you want to have true life, if you want to experience true joy, you live for other people to succeed. And serving other people is not going to be easy. 
Specifically, I don't know what that will look like, what God might call you to. It might look like holding your reputation loosely so you can tell someone about Jesus. It might look like giving up your time, your mornings, your late nights to help a friend who's in need, to get someone around God's word. It might look like using your finances to serve other people so that they can have opportunities to grow in their faith. Again, it can look like a whole number of things. I don't pretend to know everything that God is going to ask us to do in service to other people. But I think the question that's so important for tonight between us and God is just are we willing? Are we willing to go out and serve other people? Because ultimately it just looks like caring. And this world will continually tell you don't worry about other people. I was just at the gym earlier today, and I was speaking to this old Korean man that had come and sat down next to me. And he asked me, he said, Nick, have you seen the news yesterday? I said, yeah, it's heartbreaking that someone was shot and killed, that so many people, kids were injured. This is a terrible truth. And this man, he looked at me, and he started to weep. And he, he said, I asked another young man, what he thought about it. And he said, I just don't really care about things that don't pertain to me. And this man wept because he knew that life is not good when we live for ourselves. And that ultimately, that attitude of, if it doesn't happen to me, it don't matter, that is where the world is leading us. That is the direction of the world. You might care about people that can help you out in a pinch, But ultimately, the message of the world is self over all else. So you need church leaders to take care of you, and then you need to go out and care for other people. Reflection questions for this point. Am I at a church where the pastors or ministers or elders care about my heart for Jesus and about the message of God's word above all else? And then follow up question two, that am I connected at that church? Can I tell you guys, there's a huge difference between coming on a Sunday morning, showing up at the block, and actually being connected to a body. Being connected means that people know you. It might not be that every pastor knows everything going on in your life, but either a pastor or someone who has been entrusted by them is caring for you. They're looking out for you. They know that you exist. They're going to come check in on you. You can go to them when you have a time of need. And we have to be connected. It's not enough just to go. you got to be connected. Second question, am I willing to compete for the gospel by sacrificing and serving others so that they can know Jesus? Before we move on to point number two, quick question for you all. Uh, Does anyone know how much Tom Brady and LeBron James spend in a year on their physical health. Anyone got those numbers? Any guesses? Million dollars. Anyone else? Twelve million. That's really high, man. Twelve million billion dollars. Uh, it's one point five million dollars per year. They spend one point five million dollars on their physical health alone. This is everything from cryo chambers, personal trainers, chefs, recovery tools. I'm pretty sure Tom Brady has this tank that just feeds him pure oxygen somehow that he sleeps in. They have everything you could think of. This was something I also didn't know. Uh, Competing in the Olympics, 
Over your lifetime of competition window, it can cost you $100,000 just to compete and get there. Gabby Douglas, who is a uh, gold medal winning U.S. gymnast, her mom had to file for bankruptcy to send her daughter to the Olympics. That's wild. In ancient Greece, it was the same. You didn't compete unless you were rich or you had someone who was paying your way. Everyone else was just worried about growing sheep or planting your wheat or your olives or whatever it is that they did in ancient Greece. Because you were just struggling to make ends meet and so only the rich could participate. And sometimes when I look at this, I'm reminded that besides of just obvious natural athletic reasons, there is a very good factor of why I don't compete at that level. And it's because I spend $60 for a couple's pass at the next wreck. Like, I don't spend enough money to compete at that level. You have to spend so much if you want to compete at a high level. And spiritually speaking, this is the same. If we're going to go through the sacrifice of competing for the gospel, then we need to have the spiritual resources or the spiritual energy in order to compete. Thankfully, God makes those available to us. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in verse 28. Him being Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul is using this metaphor of competing and he's talking about we need to warn and we need to teach everyone about Jesus and we need to proclaim the gospel and grow them to maturity and follow after my example. But he's going to do this, look at verse 29 right there in the middle, struggling not with his energy but with God's energy that works so powerfully within him. He's going to make disciples not by his own strength but with the strength of Jesus. He's going to compete with a spiritual bank account, not his, but the riches that God has entrusted to him. Why? Because the Apostle Paul knows that this task is too big for one man. That this task is too big for any man. It has to be done by God. Point number two, competing for the gospel requires the riches of God's grace, being discipled, and making disciples. See, just like Tom Brady or LeBron, you need energy and resources to compete. And spiritually, it's like, okay, what does that mean for us today? Here's what it means. If you are going to pour out for others, you have to have something poured in. If you are going to be pouring out your life for the sake of other people, then you need something to be poured into your life. For you to have the strength to go out and love others and share the gospel, you have to allow yourself first to be daily reminded of God's great love for you. You have to be reminded that God sacrificed his son for you, that God loves you, that he's crazy about you, that he chose you, that he invited you into this purpose, that it's him who provides for all of our needs. Because otherwise you're trying to compete by yourself. And you're trying to compete with an empty bank account. And the reason why I think this is so important and my concern is because oftentimes I hear, Nick, I've been trying to make disciples and I'm so tired. 
I don't have the bandwidth right now. I've been trying to grow as a disciple, and the pressures of this life are drowning out my desire for Christ. And there's this dilemma that I hear that's so prevalent amongst people our age. It's how do I balance my responsibility to make disciples with just the day-to-day responsibilities of my job and living? And how do these two things interact? And it feels like they're always pulling against each other. And it seems like when you look at Paul, he's this incredible full-time Christian worker, what we'd call vocational minister. And it feels like he's preaching from city to city and he's planting all these churches. And we look at them and we think, man, how could I do that? I've got to go to my job all day. I don't think I'm going to answer that entire question tonight, but what I would like to do is lessen that burden for us all. Paul's race might be your race, but his pace might not be your pace. If making disciples requires first being a disciple, then Jesus commands us to work hard at our jobs, then part of making disciples and competing for the gospel is working well at your job. And can I just tell you, when you go to your job and you show up and you work hard, you are being obedient to God. That is part of what it means to compete for the gospel. And it's not a main point, and and I'll be honest with you guys, I've always worked in full-time ministry, so I don't personally know this struggle. I do have a lot of friends who feel this burden greatly. I have a wife who works in the working world. But what I do know is the feeling of being limited by life circumstances. I do know the feeling of wanting to follow Christ, but just the stressors of life feeling like it's drowning me out. I know what it's like to always want to pursue a deeper relationship with Jesus and wanting to share the Gospels, wanting to make disciples, but you just feel like you're falling behind. Because it feels like there's so many other things to focus on. And can I just tell you, God is not asking you to use all of your time for this. He's asking you to be faithful with the time that you do have. God is not asking you to come up with your own energy. God is not asking you to create time, not to figure it out for yourself, but he's asking you to rely on him. You say, God, give me the strength today. Give me the opportunity today today to know you and make you known. And I've been there, right, trying to move things around, trying to get stuff done, trying to make other people like me so I can tell them about Jesus. And what I've realized is that that does not work. But what does work is when we take a step back and we're just faithful with our responsibilities. We live our life. We go and we work hard at our jobs. We're kind to the people around us. And eventually God opens doors for the gospel. And so really, it's a lot less like we are chasing all these things down. And more so the race is that it's a steady marathon. And I'm just living in faithfulness to God. And I keep my eyes open for whenever that door opens. Whenever that opportunity opens. See, the early church was spread more through the marketplace than it was through the apostles' teaching. The apostle Paul went from town to town. But the true spread of the gospel came because people who were working Normal nine-to-five jobs were going out and they were talking about their faith in Jesus. 
People were living transformed lives and the ways that they treated people, the ways that they loved their spouses or their kids and worked hard at their jobs. It was so revolutionary that when people saw that, they said, why did you do that? And they said, let me tell you about the hope that I have. Let me tell you about why I work this way. And it might take a little bit longer than we'd like. It might not be, you know, as as glamorous as it seems like Paul's life was. But every so often, you get a chance to pray with someone. You get a chance to invite someone to the block or invite someone to church. You get a chance to share the gospel, take someone out to a meal, serve someone. And you tell them about Jesus, and they might just trust in him. And God has this way of taking our, what we feel like in our minds is just limited capacity of our limited opportunities. And he has a way of multiplying that into something that we cannot begin to imagine. He has the way of taking our faithfulness and saying, I want to do something with this that you could not begin to believe. Because we serve a powerful God. We serve an eternal and almighty God. And it's not us trying to change the world. It's not us trying to reach people. It's us being faithful to just be used by God whenever he opens the opportunity. And so I hope that that helps tonight relieve some of that burden. Again, this is not the the main point but it's an important tension that we feel. And we need God's grace. We need to be reminded that the reason why we're dependent on God and everything is because it reminds us that we were initially dependent on Jesus Christ to bring us salvation. We were dead in our sins. We could do nothing. And so God has this way of reminding us of the gospel Reminding, hey, just like you were when you were dead in your sin, so every single day you still need me. You still need me for everything. And it keeps us close to him, and it keeps us relying upon him. And not only do we need God's grace, but you also need other people caring for you spiritually, just like we talked about the church. And you need someone to show you the ropes of how to compete. Simply put, you need to be discipled. Paul says, him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul is saying, man, you need to get someone to teach you God's word. That's the proclaiming, warning, and teaching with all wisdom. He says, you need to get someone to teach you loving others and God. That's the mature in Christ. It says you need people to teach you how to pray. That's struggling. How great a struggle. And you just have to have someone explain these things to you. Learning God's word, it first means someone's got to explain the gospel to you. If you're here tonight and you're not a follower of Jesus, if a friend invited you and you're still not sure what the gospel truly is, ask him. Say, hey, would you explain to me what this message of Jesus is all about? And then it means that we need people to warn us And we need people to teach us. We need people to lovingly call us out from God's word and say, hey, don't go that way. That's not the way you compete. But then they teach us, hey, this is the actual way that you compete in the Christian life. And there's the maturing aspect. It says that God's word leads to maturity. And oftentimes the Bible uh, describes maturity as just living an obedient life to God. Living sacrificially to love other people. And we need someone to teach us what it means to mature. Just like we needed parents, we needed examples ahead of us to say, I don't know what it means to be an adult. We need people to teach us spiritually what it means to grow. All of us need these things. 
And finally, there's prayer. We need people to pray for us. We need people to pray with us. And if you don't know how to pray, there is no shame in that. The apostles themselves, they said, Jesus, we need you to teach us how to pray. We don't know how to pray. If you're here tonight and you're like, man, I I feel insecure because I don't know these things that I should know, there is no shame in learning. There's never any shame in learning. You say, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. I'd like to know. I want to make disciples. I want to get in the game, but I don't know what I'm doing. And God loves to connect people with that heart to learn with people who can show them how. And then you take your training and you live faithfully and you look for God to give you people that you can train. As you go about your life, you, you know, teaching God's words probably not going to look like it was for the Apostle Paul, speaking in hundreds or dozens of different cities. And that's a good thing. Why? Because a personal trainer is always so much more effective than a motivational speaker. A personal trainer comes alongside someone and shows them how to do things over the long haul. And that's what it means to make disciples. It doesn't mean getting up and encouraging people with a motivational talk of this is how much you need to lift and this is how you run and this is how you work out. It's doing it with them. Getting in the trenches and saying, hey, let me put my arm around you. Let me encourage you and let me keep you going. And spiritually, that's what we want to do. In the church, you need the public teaching of Scripture, but personal discipleship is just as vital. Just as important, and it's something we are all commanded to do. We teach them what we also have learned. Competing for the gospel requires the riches of God's grace, being discipled, and making disciples. Reflection questions for this point. Am I daily being reminded of God's great love for me? Not am I reading my Bible because I want to do the right thing. It's am I going to God's word and saying, God, show me how much you love me. Remind me of your goodness. I want to know you. And then you find a church that's going to point you towards God's word and going to encourage you to study it for yourself so you can know it deeper. Question number two, have I been discipled or trained to compete for the gospel? Uh, Side note for this one, it doesn't have to be a pastor or a minister or even someone who's older than you. It just has to be someone who you look at their race of the Christian life and you think, I want to run like that. Right? Patrick Mahomes is younger than me. I guarantee you if he showed up and said, Nick, I want to teach you how to play football, So yeah, man, you're on. Because he knows. He knows what it's like to play the game. In the same way, it doesn't matter age or life experience or any of those things. It matters, do you look at their life and realize they're running the way that I want to run. And I want to learn from them. Finally, number three, am I prayerfully looking for God-given opportunities to make disciples? And I think this leads us to the final question, why? Why do we compete? Like, a good competition has a prize, and so there surely has to be some kind of prize for competing for the gospel. What is that prize? In today's Olympics, uh, athletes, this was, I learned a lot of sports facts for this message. Uh, Athletes receive $37,500 for gold medal. It's pretty good. $22,500 for silver, $15,000 for bronze. Sounds like they don't make their money back on that deal. Um... For winning the Super Bowl, every single player on the Chiefs won $164,000 for being on the team. And in ancient Greece, in Paul's day, for winning any of the events of the four different Greek games, this is what you got. Can I get a drum roll for this? You got a bunch of leaves. You got a crown of olive leaves, 
a crown of laurel leaves, a crown of wild celery, or a crown of pine needles. People stuck a bunch of plants on your head because you won a race. I look at that and I'm like, man, I don't want woven vegetables drying out on my head. I like vegetables, but not on my head. I just don't like, I'm like, why would you spend so much energy struggling and suffering and spending and training for that prize? You just get a crown. And yet, nonetheless, that is what they competed for. They competed for a crown. But here's the cool thing. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. I think you can see it on the screen if we have that slide. But we are competing for an imperishable wreath. Paul says everything else in this life that they're running for, it's going to perish. It's going to fade away one day. But we compete for something imperishable. And Paul defines that crown for us. Philippians 4.1 tells us what that crown is. Philippians 4.1 says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The Apostle Paul looks at other followers of Jesus and he says, You are my joy and my crown. Point number three, competing for the gospel means winning an eternal crown of joy and love that is found in other people knowing Jesus. See, Paul's crown was that other people would experience the same life-transforming grace that he himself had received. He knew the truth that life is not about us. Our senior pastor here, Alexa Baptist, he says, when you get in the game of discipleship, that's when life gets fun. That's when you start to enjoy it because you begin to see other people have joy and Jesus loves to bless that. That's the way that he designed the whole thing that we would be able to go and find joy when other people are growing in their faith. And when we start to focus on other people, we experience that joy that Paul is talking about. It's the same illustration. I imagine if you ask Luke, he's going to get so much more joy from watching his son learn and experience the world than he did when he went through it himself. Why? Because he's so excited to see his son grow. In the same way, spiritually, we get excited to see other people grow. That's where it gets fun, when you get to help someone learn what it means to follow Jesus. Paul wants to see other followers stand firm in God. And he's going to explain what it looks like to stand firm in Colossians 2, 2 through 5. This is his goal. It says, my goal is that they, their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the full riches of assurance, of understanding, and of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And in Christ in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul says, man, I want them to be rich in Christ. I want them to be knit together in their hearts, and I want them to be encouraged in love. Then he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Jesus Christ. Our prize, Paul's prize, is that other people's hearts would be changed by the love of Jesus. 
It's that communities of Christians would be knit together who are inseparable by conflict, by disagreements, by gossip, by preferences, because of their great love for each other. And think, man, we're not breaking apart. We're staying together because we are knit together in the love of Christ. And that through loving Jesus more and more and through loving other people more and more, Paul says, I pray that they would understand the riches of Christ's death for us. I pray that they would understand how great God's love is for you and for me. I've heard it said that community is the training ground for life transformation. And so when you begin to get involved in community and making disciples, you see your life change and you see more joy. And something that I love about this room right here, we have a group of young adults who get together to grow in their love of Jesus. Can I just tell you guys, I am so encouraged by seeing all of the different groups of people wanting to study the Bible, groups of people going out and telling people about Jesus that are knit together out of love. And I see people here who are growing in their understanding of the riches of God's death for them. And it's so worth it. And not only that, but at at Journey and LBC and so many other churches, you have not just young adults, but generations of people who are loving and serving Jesus, who are experiencing the same joy and the same crown. And barely a day goes by when I don't think about what God is doing here in this room, the Block AC, and I'm not just humbled and thankful to get to be here. That I'm not just grateful to God to get to be a witness to seeing lives be transformed. To get to see people experience joy and hope. Blockhead City, we have something here that is worth exporting. We have something here that is worth competing for. The question is, are we going to go out and invite people to come compete with us? Are we going to go out and are we going to give them the same opportunity to experience the life that Jesus has first given us? Are we going to compete for the gospel? Because here's the reality. Every competition has opposition. Paul says people will try to delude you with plausible arguments. We'll talk more about that next week. But we have to be reminded of the truth. Because there are all all kinds of ideas that are going to distract and discourage you from Jesus. Lies like you need to put yourself first. You need to succeed in this life. Don't worry about eternity. You don't really need to tell people about your faith. Keep that to yourself. And they're plausible arguments. Paul says they can sound good. There can be logical cases that are made for them. But he's also clear that they're delusional. They're lies. Life is not found there. God desires us to stand firm in our faith. And Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins. Not so that we'd be led astray by lies. But that we would know the truth. And the truth would set us free. And we go out and we extend that same truth to other people. And God invites us to share that truth for an eternal crown through competing for the gospel. So tonight you might have a couple applications. Number one, decide what race you're running. If you're here tonight and you haven't ever decided to follow Jesus, you've never asked God to forgive you of your sins, make that decision tonight. Run the race. Number two, learn to compete by getting known and getting discipled. Three, run with the energy that is found in the grace of God. And four, compete for the crown of seeing others experience the hope of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today humbled that you would invite us into this race. God, thank you for this room of people who love you and want to get to know you and 
invite friends to come. And God, thank you for those friends that are coming. And God, we just pray that you would help us to run. God, we just pray that you would help us learn what it means to strive with your energy. God, not ours. God, help us to be dependent on you. God, I pray for anyone in the room tonight who's not plugged into a church that is loving them and shepherding their hearts toward Jesus. God, would you get them connected in that church? God, I pray for the person who needs to be discipled. God, would you help them to see a person or a couple people that they can learn from? God, and I pray for everyone here who's walking and following after you. God, would you give them opportunities to make disciples? God, would you give them the opportunity to see the joy that comes when other people come to know you? when other people start following you. And God, for all of us, would we be willing to compete, God, not for our glory, not for our desires, not for our benefit, but for the glory that's due your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.